Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. One thing, I, I, we had such glorious summer weather, but it's in rather cramped conditions like this without air conditioning that we pay the price. But I hope uh, the evening will nonetheless be enjoyable and you should feel free to, as we have, remove your jackets or whatever to keep yourselves cool. My name is Tim Besley. I'm chairing this event with my very good friend, uh, Jesse Norman. Um, uh, I'll give a very brief introduction to Jesse. He, he is a remarkable uh, uh, person having both, had, I'd say by now, three careers, two in parallel. His earlier career before he entered Parliament involved, uh, I think, main, a period in, in finance and then working also in the, in the voluntary sector. Uh, he was elected MP for Hereford in 2010, in which, at which point he began his full-blooded uh, career as a policymaker uh, and uh, is now um, uh, Minister at the uh, uh, Department of Transport with responsibility for roads and cycling and all other things that we care greatly about. Um, but that, in parallel with that, rather remarkably, he is now also a man of letters, uh, writing uh, both an acclaimed biography of Edmund Burke uh, uh, and now his uh, book on Adam Smith, which I wouldn't characterize as a biography in any traditional sense. It's really a book about ideas and those ideas uh, emanating from Adam Smith, who remains, as I am a card-carrying economist, one of the most revered and perhaps also misunderstood figures in economics. Um, but, and today, I think Jesse is going to not uh, just focus on Smith as a person, but as I say, uh, the, the ideas behind them. It is, it, it is as I emphasized uh, a moment ago, really remarkable and I think should cheer us all that we have people who play a role in public life as Jesse do, does alongside um, doing this. And I, I must admit it's with great envy that I uh, observed uh, um, Jesse writing this book. I saw him regularly throughout the process, uh, thinking how on earth is he able to find the time and energy alongside all, every, everything else that he does. Uh, for those of us who are paid as full-time academics and are meant to do this for a living, uh, it, 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 I, I thought there must be a chink in the armor, but no, uh, sure enough, it was delivered to the publisher on time. So, Without any further interruption, I'd like to invite Jesse to take the podium. What's going to happen? He'll speak for 20 or 30 minutes. He'll fill you in on the core ideas. Uh, after that, he and I will have a, a short conversation around uh, some, some aspects of this, and then we'll open up to the floor, and you'll have your opportunity to both ask questions and to take up uh, perhaps some challenges in terms of the ideas that Jesse tables for us. So, Jesse, you're welcome, uh, very warm welcome to the LSE. Um, the floor is yours. Uh, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Tim, and what an absolute delight it is to be here. And, ladies and gentlemen, the idea that you should be filling this room uh, on a beltingly hot uh, summer's day uh, argues uh, not just for your astonishing courage and indefatigability, but for your idea, uh, interest in ideas. And I salute you and I salute the LSE for having bred such a cadre of ideas-seeking uh, people. And so thank you very much indeed. Tim, the only reason the book is as good as it is at all is because of vast amounts of input from you, my friend. So I'm afraid um, if there are any mistakes, ladies and gentlemen, please address them to Professor Besley at the <laughs> London School of Economics in the usual way. Um, let me start if I may, by offering a slight disclaimer, I'm not, gonna, I'm not speaking here today as a member of parliament or as a minister. I'm really speaking as someone who's interested in ideas and, um, uh, as it were, with an academic background. And uh, I'm going to suggest that even today, 
um, 250 years uh, after, or almost, uh, the Wealth of Nations, uh, Adam Smith offers us a treasure trove of uh, wisdom uh, on a vast range of subjects from economics to uh, politics to ethics to social psychology to game theory. And of course, I want to stress that because policymakers today have a distressing tendency to think they know it all. But in many ways, uh, I want to suggest their understanding has gone backwards rather than forwards since the time uh, of Smith himself. Now, the reason I, one of the reasons I make that uh, important distinction between uh, being a political figure and uh, uh, thinking in these theoretical and academic terms in this institution is because uh, Smith himself memorably denounced what he called that insidious and crafty animal, vulgarly called a statesman or politician, whose counsels are directed by the momentary fluctuations of affairs. And how pleased I am to come from the House of Commons today, in which gives the lie to the suggestion that politicians are in any sense governed by the momentary fluctuations of affairs. <laughs> of course, that, ladies and gentlemen, was when Smith discusses trade wars uh, in the Wealth of Nations, how they start and how they escalate. And I can only thank... Um, President Trump. I would have a chance to thank him, I think, next week, but I can only thank President Trump for putting this issue squarely back on the policy agenda. Uh, perfect timing for the publication of this book. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Adam Smith today is uh, alternately celebrated or denounced. Uh, for many on the right of politics, he is a founding figure of the modern era, the greatest of all economists, uh, an eloquent advocate of laissez-faire and the invisible hand and the freedom of the individual, and the staunch enemy of state intervention in a world that has been released from the utopian delusions of communism and socialism. For many on the left... On the other hand, he is something uh, very different indeed. The true source and origin of so-called market fundamentalism, homo economicus, uh, efficient market hypothesis, author of what has been described as the, by Naomi Klein as the uh, textbook on contemporary capitalism, the prime mover of a materialist ideology that is sweeping the world and corrupting real sources of human value, an apologist for wealth and inequality and human se selfishness and a misogynist to boot. Now, who then is the real uh, Adam Smith? Um, we need to ask this question in part because Smith is overwhelmingly the most influential economist who ever lived. And uh, you don't need to look far in the citation analysis, and I don't need to tell an ARC audience how central that is as a tool of uh, investigation, he says with a certain degree of irony. Um, but uh, a citation analysis will show you that um, Adam Smith has more citations to his name than Hayek and Marx and Keynes, and indeed more than all of them put together. Uh, so he's by far the most influential uh, of the uh, uh, great economists, uh, even uh, today. But we have to ask ourselves the question, do his ideas, properly understood, have any real bearing on the problems and the dilemmas that we face, uh, and policymakers face today, uh, in an era when an American president is rapidly demolishing uh, orthodox ideas about the value of free trade and a British shadow chancellor calls openly for the overflow, overflow, overthrow of capitalism. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I came to Smith uh, through my book on Edmund Burke. Uh, and uh, in a way, that's appropriate because the two men greatly admired each other, and towards the end of their lives, they became quite close uh, friends. Smith is reported to have said that Burke is the only man who uh, I ever knew who thinks on economic subjects exactly as I do without any previous communication having passed between us. And that, I think, is a, it's a, it's a lovely tribute. 
uh, is often the way that outsiders uh, have the greatest insight into society. And, of course, that's true when it comes to analytic insight, but it's also true when it comes to power. The cliché is that Stalin was a Georgian and Hitler was an Austrian and uh, Napoleon uh, was a Corsican. But, of course, if we look at the analysis of society, if we think about political economy uh, and all the other aspects that uh, Smith's Irv covers, we can think of Burke, of course, was an Irishman. Smith was a, was a Scotsman. Tocqueville uh, was a Frenchman looking at America. This is not an unusual uh, phenomenon. And it, it is often the way that outsiders have the greatest insight into a society. Here it was, here it was too. Um, uh, and Burke and Smith both rose through their insights and through their sheer ability to positions of international eminence during their own lifetimes at a time when the Irish and the Scots were widely scorned and despised in England. Very broadly speaking, the assumption was that uh, if you were an Irishman uh, uh, on the make in um, England, you know, this person was after your uh, fortune or your daughter, and uh, the same was true, um, but only in a way even more with a degree of despite of the Scots. And there was a rampant uh, epidemic of Scotophobia in the 1760s uh, when uh, Scott briefly became Prime Minister. Uh, the Earl of Butte. Uh, now, both these men, both Burke and Smith, came to advise prime ministers uh, during their own lifetime, the Marks of Rockingham uh, and William Pitt the Younger, respectively. There's a marvellous description uh, of a meeting which was attended by William Pitt the Younger and many of the great figures of the age, including Dundas, Addington, Wilberforce and Grenville. Smith was one of the last guests to arrive, and when he entered the room, the whole company rose from their seats to receive him and remained standing. Be seated, gentlemen, said Smith. No, no, replied Pitt. We will stand till you are first seated, for we are all your scholars. And, of course, both Burke and Smith wrote books that utterly transformed our understanding of human affairs. So if you want to understand ideology, revolution, extremism, human institutions, representative government, political parties, constitutional democracy, every single one of these matters is a burning issue today uh, as then, then read Edmund Burke. And if you want to understand markets, free trade, economics, political economy, crony capitalism, crony capitalism, rent extraction, the origins and nature of inequality, power and property, if you want to understand moral and social norms and the creation of human culture, read Adam Smith. Or if you want to cheat, you can read my books on each of these individuals. Uh, now, having uh, written and thought quite a lot over the years about uh, economics and the philosophy of economics, I thought I knew something before I came to this project about Adam Smith. It turns out that almost everything I thought I knew uh, was wrong. Uh, uh, and actually, even that was just the tip of a vastly wider hole. So I can tell you two things, ladies and gentlemen, um, with a certain degree of expectation. One is everything you think you know about Smith is wrong, and the second is this book is the ultimate bluffer's guide if you need to make your way through um, uh, and a course uh, uh, on uh, political economy, history of, of economics, and the like. And now it has to be said, though, that Smith's own life uh, is not an enormous help to the biographer. It was uh, the very pattern of academic uneventfulness. Uh, he was born in Kirkcaldy. He went first to the University of Glasgow and then to Balliol College, Oxford, on a Snell scholarship. Uh, I'm afraid an institution which he much disliked. Um, and I think I'm right in saying um, an institution that uh, many um, uh, around us have been associated with in different ways over the years. Um, Balliol at that time was Jacobite, Tory, factional, costly, uh, expensive, and scotophobic. 
and Adam Smith was Presbyterian, Whiggish, sociable, impecunious, uh, and a Scot. So it was not a happy combination. After a short interval, Smith went back to Glasgow University as a professor, and then on a tour of France as a tutor to the young Duke of Buccleuch, scion of the greatest landowning family in Scotland at the time, and indeed now, before finally taking a position as Commissioner of Customs. Over 40 years, he published two books, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, and The Wealth of Nations, 1776, and very little else. As to his private views, we know very little. In politics, he was broadly Whiggish, uh, a term implying a belief in the virtues of constitutional monarchy, religious toleration, and personal freedom. But he remained remarkably close-lipped uh, about his own political views throughout his life. He was famously absent-minded, uh, once being so engrossed in conversation that he fell into a tanner's pit. There's a marvellous story of Smith buttering a slice of bread um, and absent-mindedly putting it into the teapot and then pouring himself a cup of tea and complaining at how bad the tea was. Um, he never married, and he had no children. As far as we know, there were no secret loves, no hidden vices, no undergraduate pranks, no adult peccadilloes. When it comes to juicy personal details, Smith's life, I'm afraid, is a featureless Sahara. But if Smith's life was uneventful, the times he lived in were absolutely tumultuous, and the book I've written is, a, is also a story of those times. The Act of Union, uh, for example, between... Uh, England and Scotland in 1707, bitterly contested at the time, uh, the subject of very serious political corruption, but ultimately the foundation of Scottish nationhood and uh, huge economic success. 1707 initiates it. Scotland goes through a period of quite turbulent uh, political uh, readjustment uh, and economic readjustment, um, but by the 1740s and 50s, it's already becoming clear that it's in the process of an extraordinary process of economic growth, and it then becomes the Asian tiger of the world economy for the next 150-odd years. It is striking how all, contrary to uh, what you may read from some Scottish nationalists, um, it is striking how all the major thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment agreed about the importance of the Union. In Smith's words, it was a measure from which infinite good has been derived uh, to this country. But of course there's also the Jacobite rebellions, uh, including the rebellion of 1745, in which Bonnie Prince Charlie and, the Highl and his Highlanders came within 110 or so miles of London and might have taken the city if they hadn't been tricked by false English intelligence. And, of course, there's the Seven Years' War, 1756 to 63, the true First World War, uh, a war in which Britain fought and defeated the French across four continents from Boston to Bengal, averting a French invasion across the Channel and laying the foundations for good or for ill of the First British Empire, a war which included the astonishing victories of the year of 1759, a year in which it was said that um, the uh, church bells never stopped ringing, uh, in which Admiral Edward Boscawen destroyed the bulk of the French Mediterranean fleet off Lagos in Portugal. General James Wolfe achieved the seemingly impossible in the Canadian territories uh, with a daring night ascent of the cliffs around the Plains of Abraham, defeating General Montcalm and taking French-controlled Quebec. And Admiral Hawke broke the French Atlantic fleet in an act of astonishing bravery at Quiberon Bay off the coast of Britain. But also, of course, a war in which uh, the debts incurred were so ruinous that they pushed Britain into the loss of its American colonies in the War of Independence uh, and ultimately played a role in pushing France into the French Revolution. Uh, and, of course, 
I should say, finally, this is a book about ideas. It's about a book about the Scottish Enlightenment in particular, that astonishing moment when Scotland transformed itself not just economically but culturally and intellectually from the very edge, moved from the very edge to the centre of European thought, becoming almost uh, in a matter of a few years moving from a partic thistle to the status of a real Madrid with a dazzling array of talent, including David Hume, Smith himself, Adam Ferguson, and a host of other figures covering philosophy, the natural sciences, law, history, and literature, as well as political economy, social psychology, and ethics. Um, And, of course, highly distinctive in its uh, commitment to personal, what was called improvement, personal and social improvement, and to the morally equalizing effects of education, and fully the equal, of that amazing but better-known generation in London, Dr. Johnson, Joshua Reynolds, David Garrick, Oliver Goldsmith, Edward Gibbon, uh, and Burke himself. Now, at the heart of this great intellectual transformation, the engine of this amazing change, uh, stand uh, Adam Smith and his great friend, uh, David Hume. Um, In many ways, a rather unusual uh, pair. Hume, older by 12 years, Worldly, open, witty, full of small talk, banter and piercing aperçu, a lover of whist, a gourmand and a flirt. Smith, by contrast, reserved, private, considered, often rather austere in his public manner, although he could unwind in private. Now, if Smith um, is, uh, uh, as it were, quite uh, inaccessible to the modern reader, Hume is a biographer's dream. He is incredibly funny. There's a marvellous moment. After his History of England uh, proved to be a tremendous uh, critical and popular success, his publisher entreated him for another volume. Hume memory replied, I have four reasons for not writing. I am too old, too fat, too lazy, and too rich. (laughs) A line which many, many authors have been tempted to give to their publishers or wish they could ever since. Um, uh, Hume, of course, had begun his uh, uh, career writing this extraordinary work, The Treatise of Human Nature, um, which if if you haven't read, I strongly encourage you to take up immediately and read one of the great works of uh, English language philosophy, uh, establishing him as one of the two greatest thinkers with Hobbes uh, in that discipline. Uh, And then he'd gone on. That had done well, but not as well as he'd liked, although it's certainly not true to say that he did, as he did, that it fell dead-born from the press. But he wanted to do better. He recast some of the ideas, the more accessible ideas, ideas about political economy and the like, into a series of essays, moral, political, and literary. Um, They had a a better, a bigger success. He wanted to go still better. He had the history of England, and that was a colossal triumph. Um, At a last dinner before Hume's death, uh, Smith complained of the cruelty uh, of the world in taking Hume from them. Uh, To which Hume replied, no, no, here am I who have written on all sorts of subjects calculated to excite hostility, moral, political, and religious. And yet I have no enemies, except indeed all the Whigs, all the Tories, and all the Christians. So there's a moment where I think the narrative needs a little bit of a lift. I just stick Hume in there. He's the kind of best supporting actor of this book. But of course the book isn't just about uh, what... um, Adam Smith and himself and his friends and uh, his uh, world uh, and what they... It's also a a book about ideas, about his thought. uh, And also it's a book about their impact, why it matters. And uh, Tim is right to say it's not a biography in the conventional sense. I'm trying to pioneer a novel historiographical form where you write the the biography in the first half of the book and basically, uh, as it were, hopefully it's a rattling narrative that sees the reader by the throat and propels them with astonishing force 
uh, as though it was a best-selling novel. Then you get to a pivot point halfway through, and we say, well, actually, what does this all mean? What does it matter? And at that point, the ideas get unpacked more, and one can see how, how they hang together and what their contemporary impact might be. In his lifetime, in his own lifetime, Smith published two great works, as I've said, The Theory of Moral Sentiments and The Wealth of Nations. The first about ethics, the second about political economy. The first long ignored, the second probably the most influential and widely read, quoted, uh, already quoted, certainly not widely read, widely quoted work of social science ever written. But we can be rationally certain that neither book read even by the vast majority of those who do quote them. But if we're going to understand Smith's own thought, uh, even these two books are not enough. Um, in, uh, towards the end of his life, Smith uh, confessed to having two other great works upon the anvil, as he put it. The one, a sort of philosophical history of all the different branches of literature, a philosophy of poetry and eloquence. The other, a sort of theory and history of law and government. Uh, but neither work was completed. And near his death, he instructed his executors to burn them. And perhaps other works unknown, which they did highly reluctantly. We cannot measure the loss of those works, but they, the executors were allowed to spare some very important essays on astronomy, on language, and miraculously, quite separately, two fairly full sets of student notes, Samizdat student notes on Smith's lectures on jurisprudence have survived, and they give us important additional clues. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you're worried about future immortality, take those notes, pass them on, and they, become, they may become part of some crucial work of reconstruction. What I've been trying to do, what many um, much greater scholars, Smith and myself, have been trying to do is to regather those ideas, regather those works, and to assemble a picture of his thought like some great dinosaur out of these different fossils, if you like, putting them together, and to try to bring out some of the underlying grace and power of the animal as a whole. But we need to start with the, the problematic. What is it that Smith takes to be the central issue that he wants to address? Uh, and of course, one of them is to explain the society that he lives in. Why is it that Scotland's made this amazing cultural, intellectual, and political, economic transformation um, underway during his own lifetime? And, and also, may one can he defend it against the idea that commerce is somehow intrinsically bad and business is just, um, as it were, uh, uh, empty materialism. So he wants to make a defense in the Welsh of Nations of that view. But there's a deeper project at the center of his thought, and that is, in a way, the great Enlightenment project, um, to set out what David Hume described in the opening uh, words of the treatise as a science of man, and do what Isaac, do what I, for, for, for a whole range of subjects, what Isaac Newton had done for physics and astronomy and cosmology. That is to give a unified and general account, not just of one fragment of science, but of human life in all its major aspects, derived from a few basic propositions, but spreading out to cover philosophy, religion, political economy, jurisprudence, and the arts, as well as the science, even language itself, and able in principle this science of man to serve as the basis for every other branch of human knowledge. And crucially, to be based on observation and experience and not on natural law, divine inspiration, religious dogma, or any other form of, as it were, extra scientific or extra national, natural authority. No religious premise to be found lurking in this science. Now, for Smith, the crucial idea, the idea that links all of his works, pulls the whole thing together, is the idea of the continuous exchange that forms part of all uh, human uh, interaction. Humans are social animals uh, for Smith, and they form themselves 
in uh, uh, reaction and interaction with each other. And that sense of exchange, therefore, extends not merely to exchange of goods and services in markets, which we know from the Wealth of Nations and we identify with him. Uh, it is uh, also exchange of meanings in language and exchange of regard, exchange of esteem uh, in the formation of moral and social norms. So, so Smith believes that we form our norms as a matter of social psychology by wishing, as he puts it, to love and to be lovely in the eyes of others. And it's that interaction that brings uh, norms into being. Uh, now, The Wealth of Nations, on its side, is a work of inextinguishable genius, not merely because it sets out the great intellectual tools of political economy, but because Smith, as Tim reminded me, was the first person to put markets at the center of economics. That's the foundational move that creates um, Smith's, uh, as it were, everlasting reorientation of the idea of uh, economics and political economy. But markets are not the disembodied mathematical constructs of modern economics and policymaking. Rather, they are living institutions embedded in specific cultures and mediated by social norms and trust. The genius of the first work, and it's very often people are under, feel under incentive to take the first work, the theory of moral sentiments, and oppose it to the second, to say that the first book is about altruism and human goodness, and the second work is about greed and human selfishness. Nothing could be further from the truth. These markets are institutions. They're embedded in culture and practice and tradition, all the rest of it, and trust. And that is what shapes those interactions. And of course, it shapes them in a way that internally evolves, but also evolves in relation to the state uh, and uh, in relation to government. Markets have common features, but they are as different from one another as individual humans are, as all institutions are. Markets for land and labor and capital, uh, asset markets from product markets and the rest of them. And one of the things that's so striking about the wealth of nations is that Smith isn't just a theorist. Uh, he's really embedded in the detail of how markets actually work. The herring market, the corn market, the labor market, the market for bills of exchange, and all the rest of them. The point is that markets exist not because uh, merely they have a private purpose, but because they have a public value. Uh, they generate economic value, but they have evolved for their role in our uh, public well-being. And they constitute a socially constructed and evolving order that exists and must exist because it serves the public good. So, going alongside that is this idea of what happens when markets go wrong. And, of course, Smith... Um, and I'll wind up in a few minutes, uh, moments. Smith is not a theorist of capitalism. Capitalism in its modern era sense, that is to say markets plus corporations as autonomous uh, uh, bodies of capital, that doesn't come into existence until the 1840s or 1850s. Um, this is a pre-capitalist account of markets. In many respects, capitalism is a really misleading and unhelpful way to think about some of these uh, activities. Um, Smith is a theorist of markets, and of course he contains with him a a, a searing attack in his criticisms of the mercantile system on what we would think of now as crony capitalism. And we can explore, perhaps in the Q&A, some of the different ways he does that in terms of thinking about principal agent problems, asymmetries of information and power, uh, and, and rent extraction, all of which are uh, features um, that we see in many, many markets today. So let me say this then, ladies and gentlemen. Which of these great uh, caricatures of Smith is true? Well, I think you'll see neither. 
um, and by a long way. Smith is more a philosopher than an economist. He was not an advocate of laissez-faire. The invisible hand occurs just once in the wealth of nations. He has more than one specific theory of markets. He did not oppose all state interventions in markets. Indeed, he positively advocates a range of them. He did not think selfishness was a virtue. He was not a misogynist. He would have been an opponent of the modern idea of market fundamentalism. Homo economicus and the efficient market hypothesis are later ideas that in many ways distort Smith's own views. Uh, And, of course, uh, capitalism, in its modern sense, did not develop until 60-odd years after the wealth of nations. But in any case, what matters for Smith, and in a way this is the final point I want to leave you with, um, the crucial reorientation. Because Smith is a pre-Darwinian theory of the evolution of culture and society and political economy tied together through the state's relationship to forms of property, um, because it is that integrated theory, uh, what matters for Smith is not capitalism per se, but commercial, what he calls commercial society. That amazing moment when Scotland, uh, and as he sees and he believes all countries, move away from dependence of one person on another towards uh, uh, a world of commercial interaction in which, as he puts it, uh, every man, and of course he means every man and woman, is in, its, in himself a merchant and lives by exchanging. It's that move to commercial society um, and the freedoms which that society offers for people to buy and sell in their own right and without subordination that I think constitutes um, in many ways the reorientation we need today as we think about policy and its impacts across our society. Thank you very, very much indeed. Well, thank, thank you very much, Jesse. That was a, a tour de force, and uh, uh, particularly in the atmospheric conditions right now, I think remarkable. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so so a, cu- a couple of thoughts to fo- fo- follow up on. In, you, you've rightly concentrated on the, the virtues of Smith's thinking, um, but could you give us some insights into where he went wrong? Are the things that you spot, the ideas... And, 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 and developments of his thought that impressed you less. I mean, you focused on all, yes. all of the positives, but to get a more balanced picture, what about the negatives? No, that's absolutely right, of course. And I do actually spend quite a lot of time, um, you know, in, as part of the appraisal, highlighting areas where we don't think he got it right, and in fact, either by commission or omission. So I think it's fair to say that Smith uh, you know, has something that looks suspiciously and has been often described as a labor theory of value. There are many economists who wouldn't accept that as a, an account of how value builds itself. It's been enormously influential in the Marxist tradition, but I think um, that would would be regarded with some suspicion now. Uh, it's also true that there are many aspects. Smith's really writing before the advent of industrial capitalism. Um, and that kind of inflection point between, uh, as it were, an agrar- a more agrarian society and an industrial society. And you can see markets operating. And in fact, he had the, uh, he had the example of the great Caron ironworks where they made the carronade, which is the great offensive weapon of British sea power, naval power at the end of the uh, 18th century, um, uh, in front of him as, as to what a really large industrial manufacturing outfit might look like. But he never has a, a kind of anticipation of what industrial capitalism would like, look like or what industry in that sense uh, would look like. And I think that's a, a mistake. And also, he's... he's um, in many ways does not appreciate something that we would regard as absolutely foundational, uh, which is the role of technology. Uh, and so, you know, there clearly are lacunae in his thought uh, on, on all of those uh, fronts. It it's remains, as regards industrial capitalism, one of the things that's extraordinary about um, uh, that moment is that when 
Alexander Hamilton is right, because this is a name that's much fated now for a very good reason um, um, in the theatre. But if you think of one of Hamilton's sublime genius is to read The Wealth of Nations and to think about the, the, the conditions of public debt in America at the time and think about the scope for America to become not an agrarian but an industrial society. In his report on manufacturers, he has this amazing intellectual move where he goes well beyond Smith in a way that I think develops those ideas. Um, and I, that's an extraordinary test to um, Hamilton's kind of um, self-educated genius and astonishing imagination that he's able to do that. So I think you tried to stress that that Smith shouldn't be owned by the right, as he often is in in practical terms. That said, there are people, and I can think of Michael Sandel being an example, who think there's a kind of market way of thinking which runs through Smith, I would say. Now, of course, you you could take the view, and I'd like you to reflect on this, that markets have been one of the greatest um, uh, devices for actually um, bringing people together, necessarily driving them apart. And I'm not saying that as a market fundamentalist. It's just that Albert Hirschman famously popularized the idea of du commerce, the idea that we're, by actually interacting together in markets, we end up uh, um, actually appreciating each other's perspectives and becoming um, 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 more sociable. Um, I wonder what Smith thought. I mean, Michael Sandel, by contrast, has emphasized that the marketization of society has actually had the opposite effect, that we, we become more selfish, we're less likely to interact on other bases. Do you, first of all, what, where do you think Smith would have stood on that? But what, what do you think about it as well? well okay, so, so, so Smith is not, it's very important to say, Smith is not a utopian. So Smith does not think that all market activity is ipso facto a good idea. He's absolutely aware that people get ripped off in markets and they can come to markets uh, uh, you know, in a state of uh, uh, relative inequality as regards information or power. And um, you know, those are conditions of exploitation. And he's amazingly good um, on you know, one particular market which he doesn't think should exist at all, and that's the, that's the slave trade and slavery. Um, um, you know, Smith is writing... Uh, you know, pungent critiques on economic and moral grounds of slavery 25 years before the anti-slavery movement really gets going uh, in Britain, which it does at the end of the 1780s. And that's a remarkable testimony. Also, um, uh, 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 very, very um, uh, interesting. And, and I think a point that he's, uh, is underappreciated. It completely gives the lie to the idea that he thinks that markets are somehow automatically good. Um, so, so let's talk about um, his view of that. He doesn't say so he's not in utopian. He doesn't think markets are automatically good. He doesn't think that norms that are struck in society take the other side of the argument, his views on social psychology um, uh, that I've described. He doesn't think that, that norms are struck are automatically socially beneficial. He thinks they often are because we look to be loved and lovely in each other's eyes, and that causes us to behave well because we wish other people to think of us as behaving well, and that establishes a codes of practice that become normatively involved. And that's his very clever, to any philosophers out there who worry about the Humean question of whether you can get an ought from an is, that's a really interesting move because what Smith says is, I can give you a natural naturalistic basis for norms, once something is a norm, it becomes kind of compelling to people and creates a, a reason to follow it. And that's a rather interesting Smithian response to this potential Humean idea. But um, So he doesn't think that the, these things are always going to turn out for the best. Um, and of course, he's, he can be extremely critical if he thinks markets are being 
uh, bent in ways that disadvantage people. There's a marvelous moment where he says, um, you know, when, uh, uh, if there's ever a question of, of law in relation to uh, the workers, it should always be preferred over the interests of the masters because the asymmetry in power between the two gives the masters such an inbuilt advantage. So I think it's a much more nuanced view. On the social psychology side, on the norms side, of course, he is acutely aware that it's precisely the competitive aspect that keeps people through the longing to truck, barter, and exchange, um, as it were, brings them into interaction with each other and creates the competitive conditions which allow markets to flourish. It's precisely those things that create this very unattractive, uh, reflect this very unattractive human characteristic of admiring the rich and the powerful. And he's got some marvelously anti-materialistic words where he talks about the obsession that people have um, for um, what he calls trinkets of frivolous utility. That is to say, objects of no value, but things that just people find themselves accumulating just on a treadmill of acquisition. And I think, I think his views are very nuanced across both of those sides. So I'm, I'm going to invite you to have a, a Daniel Day-Lewis moment, by which I mean, I want you, I want you to get in character. We're going to have a bromance. No, I, I want you to get in character now and to, and to think about the answer to the following question from your understanding of where Smith would have come down. So, so you, you've had a chance to observe, what, 200 plus 250 years of modern economics, well, of economics as it's evolved, and you, you could look at modern economics. Um, what do you think Smith would have to say about would he think modern economics was an aberration or did, would he be proud of the fact that you think that he looked back and really began the discipline? Where, 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 what do you think you'd be saying about the state of modern economics? Well, it's such an interesting question. Of course, um, in a way, you know, what would Smith say about things? You know, what, what was Smith's view on the hijab? You know, was he a fan, is, would he be a fan of Beyonce? I mean, it's a kind of parlor game, and one needs to be a little bit careful about how far it goes. But I guess if I can always think the first thing is pretty obvious, is he would be dazzled by the range and the ingenuity of the of the applications of the way in which economic thinking has been extended and applied to many different areas. Um, I think he would be surprised by its lacunae in some respects, and let me just pick on a few. You know, um, you know, Smith contemplates the idea that there should be, he's worried about alienation, what Marxists would call alienation, and what he describes as mental mutilation. So when people in the division of labor find themselves uh, rapidly performing the same act, he worries that their minds will become um, damaged and, and hurt by that. It's an incredibly modern idea, and uh, that that can be bad for them. And he's a strong advocate of public education as a result, for women as well as for men it appears. Uh, and so it's, I think he would be very surprised by the extent to which um, so much of recent economics, less so in the last few years, but recent economics over the past 20 or 30, just kind of written women out of the picture, never really, indeed before that, never really thinks about um, what you might call feminist economics, not just as an account of women's work, but as a critique of the subject as a whole and its governing assumptions. I think that's a really interesting point, and I think, I think Smith uh, would, might have noticed that. Um, I think the other thing I think he would be surprised by is the extent to, is the question of who's in charge between, as it were, the models, the theory, and the practice. I mean, he is a punctilious observer and gatherer of information about specific markets. And so he'd be very excited by the modeling instinct that, that kind of refi you know, takes away a lot of extraneous detail and tries to look at core relationships within markets and to model them mathematically. But I think he'd be worried that that imposes costs um, on the nature of theorizing. A, a Smithian view of the world is not one, it's not a general equilibrium theory in my view. It's not a, it's not a world of arrests in which you can model um, a system at any given point in time 
um, uh, uh, or at least you can do so, but you give up the dynamism and the energy of the system. His is an idea of an evolving um, set of interactions between markets, within markets, and with the state. Uh, and so, and, and when we think too, in too static a way, I think we lose that sense. And you see it with things like preference formation. So people form their preferences. They're not, they're not static things. You don't allocate a preference to someone on a model that basis. You might choose to. But what actually happens in reality is people's preferences are constantly changing. They're changing in relation to their own, as it were, ordering of preferences and their strength. But they're also changing completely in, in reaction to other people's. And so I think there's a dynamic aspect which we, which we lose from a Smithian conception and an evolving, as it were, ecological aspect, which we lose if we, if we get too boxed into um, model making. And, and what is so interesting is that how much of modern economics, you'll know this much more than me, Tim, um, has kind of rediscovered that worry um, and is trying to get past it in many different ways in, in the work that's being done today. Excellent. So we have time now to open this up for uh, discussion and questions from the floor. Can I ask you to say, first of all, who you are and to keep your interventions brief so we can get as many people in as possible? There are roving mics. Can I ask you to wait till the mic gets to you? Uh, and uh, I think we'll collect them in batches of two or three. Is, sure. that, is that right? Sure. Just Depends just... how many there are. Well, I mean, there are, yeah. But that's so. Who would like to, to start? We have one over here. Thank you. Hi, uh, Drew Singupta, Tiffin School. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, for what policies do you think Smith's ideas are most misunderstood and misused nowadays? Okay, so what policies of Smith's are most misunderstood or misunderstood okay. in what policy areas? Do we have anyone else at the moment? We, is there someone upstairs with a mic, by the way? Or not? Yeah, there is. Yes. So, yeah, so, yeah, that's the mic person. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, she may have a question as well, Tim. We right, yeah. Very good. Well, we'll, we'll go. We'll, we'll, we'll take that question, and then we'll hopefully. Um, uh, let me just think about that. I'm. I'm not sure that I've ever done any ranking or thinking about policy areas in which Smith. Let me just reflect on that. Um, so, I th- let me give you more a more general answer, if I may, um, which is. Uh, um, Think about the problem from, of, of, of political economy from Smith's perspective and contrast it with the one we have today. So in Smith's time, markets, to the extent they exist, are very often thickets of not merely uh, legislation and statute and common law in some respects, but also uh, church regulation and guild regulation. And so he... Um, the deregulation, what we would call deregulation, but the removal of impediments and regulation, which is part of the system of natural liberty that he advocates, is almost inevitably going to have both a welfare-generating effect and, in many ways, an equalizing effect. Um, Now, today, um, it's not so obvious that that's true. We have uh, many markets in which, actually, what we see is substantial increase in insider power versus outsider power. And so the rule of a more intelligent state in trying to strike the right balance and the requirement for the state to strike the right balance as the ultimate guarantor of the legitimacy of the system at a time when people are running out of trust 
in the legitimacy of the system becomes enormously important. So rather than, as it were, tie it down to specific markets, I think the way to think of it is to say, actually, we just need to reconceive, in the case of each market, what the kind of appropriate level of intervention of the state might be. And I suggest, at one point in the book, a way of dealing with some of these um, issues, which is um, when you have platforms, so technology platforms, because platforms are different, they have different, you know, well, the way you attract, where you deal with an Amazon type of potential market abuse might be different from the way in which you deal with in Facebook or Google. Um, but, uh, uh, so one of the, one of the ideas I've explore, explored is the idea of whether we could increase the extent to which people own their own information and then can use bots to equalize the playing field and improve their search and cognitive capabilities relative to uh, the platforms, and, and then potentially also to build relationships with other consumers to exert market power on platforms. That's a very Smithian kind of response to the, to the problem. I hope that makes sense. You've, just forgive me to follow up on that, though. I mean, the very, there's a famous quote, as you know, Smith, that nothing, nothing more is required than to carry a state from the lowest level of barbarism to the highest level of opulence than peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice, for which frequently people will say Smith believed in low taxation. Yes. So I notice you didn't answer. Is that because you don't believe Smith didn't believe in low taxation? No. I mean, there are two things to say about taxation. Of course, one is that Smith gives the canonical formulation of the things we want from a tax system. Uh, And the second is that um, I'm not at all persuaded that Smith uh, believed that low taxes, uh, so in fact, I mean, taxes that are a restraint of trade um, or very expensive to collect be one thing. But I think his system... Uh, allows for that. And there's a very important point about Smith's attitude towards equality, which I just want to frame, which is if you take, and this is work of Deborah Bucharest, it's not mine, but if you take what he says seriously, his system is one in which great lumps of capital and sources of inequality, it's quite hard to build them up. Because you have competitive markets, so you, you do not have, as it were, um, excessive profits being built up by uh, profit-making entities. Um, they, tend to get, they tend to get competed away. Of course, the, there are things one can say about that, but that's the overall picture. He is an opponent of primogeniture. So he's, opponent of, uh, he's an opponent of agglomerating money and passing it down through families through the firstborn. And entailments, which are an attempt to, as it were, um, do the same thing by different means. Uh, and, and, of course, he believes that um, you know, the workers should be better paid than they are because of the imbalance in market power between them. So when you include those things and you include the idea, and including the idea of a land tax at one point that he contemplates, you can imagine his system would be really quite, really quite egalitarian, particularly by comparison with some of the systems we see today. Right. Next question down here. And one here? Yeah, okay. And one left. Okay, we'll do three at Thank we'll you. Three this time. Thank you. I'm Sun Gao from China, and I'd like to ask you that, uh, do you think that uh, China's recent 30 years development is uh, an example to prove Adam Smith's theory is reasonable? It's reasonable? Okay, thanks. Does does China validate Smith? So we go down the front next, so we're going going to collect three here, and then we're going to... Okay, now we're getting lots of hands. My name is Iham. I'm wondering how can we use Adam Smith's ideas to address the problem of the frequent strike of London's transport systems? Because uh, I read in his book 1, Chapter 10, where he talks about the factors that affect a labor, a worker's uh, wages, such as so that the more cleaner, the more dignified the profession is, uh, the 
lower pay. It usually, well, I mean, if a job is dirty or hard or not honorable, usually the, way, the, the workers can get paid more. So do you think it's more reasonable to raise the wages for the drivers or to make the profession more honorable? Gosh, that's a great question. Remember, we have a transport minister here. Uh, yeah. right. uh, Thank you for that. One, one Thank one. you for that, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, um, I'm Frida, and I come from Mexico. Um, I was wondering what Adam Smith would think about the, close, the threatening of the closure of global markets and if he would feel good about protectionist measures and this um, new wave of um, anti um, globalization. Thank you. Okay, so we have three topics. We have China, we have strikes, and we have global markets. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> In three and a half minutes. Um, how fantastic. Well, uh, by the way, what an LSC audience. Thank you so much. Marvelous questions. So does China validate Adam Smith? Well, there's a way of thinking of China on which, of course, um, it does validate Adam Smith because one way of thinking of it is to say that China in the last 30 years has allowed markets to operate and has uh, therefore unleashed the benefits of the division of labor and specialization and market depth and value added and innovation and all the rest of it. And that's, a, that's one way of thinking about it. But don't forget, I don't think of Smith as a pure economist. I think of him as a political economist in this regard. And therefore, you can't just look at uh, the economics. You have to ask yourself, what is the form of government which relates to property? And... The worry I think Smith would have about China is a simple one, which is if the economic growth ceases for some period of time, either falls, um, either as it were goes below zero or fails even to satisfy the intrinsic demands of the escalating standard of living and the legitimacy that's been created by that expectation, then what reserves of legitimacy does a society which is not in itself a commercial society have to offer, and I think you'd be worried about that. And I think you'd be right to be worried about that. Um, now, on the issue of frequent strikes on London transport, I wish it were the case that frequent strikes on London transport were um, the, uh, merely the reflection of, uh, as it were, a proper concern about conditions of um, those working. But I'm afraid to say it very often um, isn't. It's very often politically motivated, um, or it's very often a, about a panic about technology uh, and the feeling that jobs are going to be lost in some sense. So actually, I think that worry is completely misguided uh, in that case, and there are successful parts of the London transport system, the Docklands Light Railway, which have no people working on them in the trains at all. Um, so these are, these are not necessarily areas where one needs to have jobs. What the state's role to do is to allow processes of transition and support for those workers to make sure that they can be profitably and successfully and happily retrained and allowed to pursue other work. And, of course, the economy in its multiplicity now does allow many of those things to happen um, if one's willing to do that. So I think it allows us, forces us to a different consideration of what the role of the state is. Um, and then finally, closure of global markets. Well, uh, there's no doubt from this point of view, this view is clear, which is that um, free trade is highly beneficial to both parties. He doesn't have a theory of, of you know, comparative advantage, but he has a theory of absolute advantage. And um, so he understands the core insight behind free trade at a time when very few other people did and when free trade was regarded as 
positively strange. And don't forget that Britain didn't run a, a free trade policy until the middle of the 19th century. And even then, it wasn't really a free trade policy. It was an imperial trade policy rather than a free trade policy. And it had had a, a degrees of protectionism, in many respects highly successful degrees of protectionism, from um, you know, Henry VII um, in the late 15th century. So this was very new thinking for Britain at the time. Um, but, of course, even Smith allows, and this is where that quote about vulgar and insidious animals called politicians comes from, even Smith allows that um, if you want to, not to be taken advantage of in a free trade environment, it can be sometimes, for brief periods of time, appropriate to impose uh, import restrictions or other levies in order to protect your capacity to have a free trade agreement or a market in due course. Okay. So I stored, stored well, there's two, two over there, so we can have the mic go over there, then we'll come back over here. Oh, there's someone upstairs as well, so let's, uh, let's, uh, let's see. Hello. Uh, thank you for your input, um, but going right back to the beginning, you talked about the theory of moral sentiments and ethics and the wealth of nations as markets and economics. And I've that, was long, a, that was a caricature view. I was contrasting that with what I... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, it's a long time since I read The Wealth of Nations, or should I more accurately say extracts of it, but I always thought it had an ethical backbone in that efficient markets would increase general welfare, and yet if markets are entirely unfettered, then it could lead to enormous inequalities. And I just wondered if you have anything to say on Smith markets and inequalities. Well, Smith is, a, Smith is an enormous theorist of inequality. He thinks very hard about inequality, and, uh, so, and he's, it, would be not, it wouldn't be news to Smith at all that markets can lead to inequality. And as I've described, the theory of um, the, the, the system of natural liberty that he describes is in many ways designed to keep inequality to a minimum. Um, but I, I've been a very poor um, lecturer or talker today indeed if I've allowed you to think that I think that those two books are in any way just about, as it were, um, altruism one side or... No, no, I understand. I, I, but I, the point is they are other people's views. The, the, I think there's one single set of ideas here and I absolutely think that Smith would have recognized the morally improving aspects of markets as well as the morally undermining aspects of markets. So let's just touch on them for a second. The morally undermining aspects of markets might be um, a, a sense of desperation if one is seeking a, a, a very low wage income and as a result of exploitation in a market or just as a result of market structure. Um, um, a, a, an improvement, a, a, a morally improving aspect of markets might be um, the encouragement they give to people to work hard and to save and to be, as it were, um, uh, friendly in their interactions with people because of the desire to trade with them. And of course the idea of du commerce that Albert Hirschman picks up, that Tim mentioned earlier, ultimately comes from Montesquieu. This is an idea that's really being pioneered. It's that great shift um, in the early part of the 18th century that lays open an awful lot of this thinking for both, for both Burke and for Smith. Okay, we're going to go up. Where, where was the hand up there? Let's go, let's go up the top. Thank you. Um, I think it's on, yeah. I can't, I'm so sorry, I can't really hear you. Could you possibly shout a bit if you can? Cause it, and, oh, um, and, and what's your name? Sorry. Oh, my name is Azad. I'm originally from Australia. With regard to what Smith coined, well, Smith calls, especially in his pathology charitable words about politicians, it appears clear that he has technocratic, he has technocratic leanings of some kind. And what do you think of the idea of when revitalizing the idea of Smith? Are we 
Uh, okay, so the question is, um, does that quote I gave from Smith about politicians imply that he's really uh, a believer in technocracy, and is he really inviting us to hand over, as it were, policymaking to the technocrats and to divorce it from the democratic system? Uh, and I, the answer is, I, d- I don't think that's a disease that he would have recognized particularly. I think it's a modern disease where we have these ramified cadres of policy advisors and officials. Uh, and um, much excellent work they do too. But I don't think it would have occurred to Smith, I mean, certainly in the context of a William Pitt, who is above all his own finance minister and you know, astonishing you know, financial innovator in his own way, and indeed Townsend, um, a very brilliant man before him in the 1760s, although his, many of his, some of his actions had disastrous consequences. Um, I don't think uh, uh, Smith would have regarded either of those two as somehow uh, being pray to or vulnerable to a cadre of, of advisors, as it were, telling them what to do in a yes minister type way. I think he expects them to be um, enlightened leaders, well-informed and aware of the technical arguments. But the idea that there are technical arguments is an 18th century idea. And it's very important to realize that Smith's The Wealth of Nations, just to focus on that, is in part a book about how you can make better policy. And so the question sometimes arises, well, is it a descriptive book or is it a prescriptive book? And the answer is it's both, because the, in particular the first half is a descriptive account of how the division of labor and how um, markets in some respects work and uh, credit and labor markets and all that stuff. But, but the latter part is a swinging attack on the mercantile system and on you know, its colonial counterparts and all the rest of it. So, so Smith is um, fully persuaded that a good work of policy can help people to make the right, better decisions about policymaking. And the 18th century is a time in which Britain as a whole passes an enormous amount of economic legislation. Um, people will sometimes forget this, and um, in which they do an enormous amount of thinking, 17th century and 18th century, about how to model, not just how to model, but how to accurately, how accurately describe and capture people's economic activity. And so it's a quantifying age and a measuring age and a policy-making age. And Smith tries to take advantage of those and make contributions on, to both sides of that. Okay, I think there was somebody over there. Who was... Hi, my name's Matt. And um, I was wondering what you think a Smithian approach would be to modern issues like pollution or something like that. Should we take any more while we've got a question? There's one, there's one over there. Yes, sir. I'll start down the line, and then there's one at the back. Yeah. Okay. Hi, my name's Ralph. Um, I was wondering, why do you think the misrepresentation of Smith's views has come so far and become so prevalent? And also, do you think it could be put down to potentially one party, such as uh, right-wing free market economists? Okay, and Great. we'll take one. Oh, actually, there's two there, right next to each other. So we may as well take those two, and then we'll come back to you, Jesse. Uh, about what? What would Adam Smith think about Boris Johnson's resignation? Okay, right. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, we have a question in front there. So my question was about, you kind of talk quite a lot about implementing the reign of Adam Smith's policies in, kind of mod, in the modern economy. Do you think because he was kind of formulating his ideas even before the Industrial Revolution, do you think that any of his ideas have become kind of outdated or irrelevant, especially in regards to kind of the modern economy and technology and things like that? Okay, there you have it. Uh, right. Um, so, 
so on pollution, uh, what was it? Well, question about pollution. Um, uh, of course, the uh, a, a Smithian analysis of a market uh, is one. I think it's fair to say, I'm slightly struggling for a quote to support this, but I think it's fair to say it's one in which he um, assumes, if he doesn't argue for the idea that costs are going to be borne by all the market participants rather than just pushed on to other people, because otherwise there's a tacit subsidy, um, as it were, towards the market player themselves. And pollution is a classic example of that. You know, the paper company that um, pollutes the river rather than pay for the clean-up technology itself doesn't internalize the costs, it externalizes them and forces them on to others. So I think that's um, um, as it were, <clears throat> comes part and parcel with the picture that Smith is uh, giving us. Um, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Let me think if there's more to be said about that. I'll come back on a second. Um, uh, why has he been misrepresented? It's a very, very good question. I think that he's, he gets very misrepresented by both the left and the right. And I think the, the, the right... The thing to understand is that Smith is very, because his prestige is so great, he tends to get picked up to address whatever the current problem is of the day. And so if you think the problem is uh, that um, the economy is becoming sluggish and uh, overburdened by regulation, as people thought in this country and in America in the 1970s and 80s, then Smith is a very natural place to go, and you tend to emphasize the natural liberty aspects and the removal of regulation as a kind of uh, counterpart. Um, uh, and there have been other times when we've seen that. If you look at um, it from a left-wing standpoint, there are moments where markets just seem um, overwhelming and unfair and um, productive of inequality, although, of course, on a global basis, markets are by far the most equalizing mechanism for economic activity that's ever been devised. Um, if you look at it from a left-wing standpoint, then it becomes very, very easy to say, well, you know, we need a poster child for these evils, and we're going to call it Smith. And, of course, it, that's part, that's, they can only be enabled by someone who's never really read him or thought about him on either side. I mean, he isn't a, a, a laissez-faire theorist, as I've described. He doesn't believe in a minimal state. He doesn't think all state interventions are bad. On the contrary, he contemplates a vast number of states' interventions. There's different points. At one point, he wants to have a cap on interest rates. Another point, he's, he talks about the value of the Navigation Act for defense purposes. Um, you know, he thinks that uh, alcohol should be differentially um, taxed. I mean, there's an amazing array of things he's prepared to do. And, and in many ways, they kind of anticipate some of modern ideas about tax policy and um, as well as about uh, people... Uh, people's behaviour and how it can be shaped by policymakers. Um, Boris's resignation. Um, I'm afraid I don't think Smith has got anything to offer on uh, uh, Boris's resignation. Um, but let me reflect further on that. Um, outdated ideas. Um, well, we've talked about uh, Smith's ideas about um, labour and labour as a as a source of economic value. That's been widely questioned. Um, let me think. I'm just trying to, I'm slightly struggling as to whether there are particular ideas. I mean, there are particular policy recommendations that we wouldn't necessarily identify with now. But many, what's, what's striking is that many, I mean, you know, a cap on interest rates would be obviously productive of ill effects in many ways. And that was something that he advocated because he thought the alternative would be to encourage speculation. Um, so one can see the, the instinct, even if one disagrees with the prescription. Um, what's more striking is the number of areas in which you think actually this person's really onto something. And, it, you know, I mean, say, for example, he thinks that people should be paid uh, um, in cash rather than in kind because he recognizes that paying workers in kind is a way of kind of enslaving them. 
And, you know, there are many things that we find very, I would say, exciting and interesting about his views even now. So, do we have any more? No, I think... Okay, I think I'll I'll draw matters to a close. Um, Jesse... Is your book on sale this evening? Uh, I'm I'm delighted to say I will be skinned by my publisher if I don't mention that there are copies on sale outside, which I'd be delighted to inscribe to anyone bold enough or brave enough to want a copy. And um, as I say, um, if you don't want it and if you don't have a member of your family who wants it, it is the ultimate bluffer's guide to getting through a successful university degree. So I encourage you to look at it in those terms, if in no other. So it just remains, therefore, for me to thank Jesse. as I'm sure you've all sensed, there's a huge amount of contemporary relevance in the, in the ideas of Adam Smith that Jesse has reminded us. Uh, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the, the, uh, his presentation and uh, his answers as much as I have. So thank you, Jesse, for staying with